Thank you all for joining today's episode of Your Double Podcast. Today, I'm joined with Donna Foster Zahid, who is the mother of a child abducted to Pakistan in 1991 from the United States. She successfully got her son back within months at a time when laws against parental abduction were inexistent in the U.S. and around the world. When she got home to the U.S., she noticed the little support that left behind parents got, and many people were reaching out to her for support. And so she went on to found Coming Home International. Coming Home International quickly grew to an international team of six persons, and they were able to get 12 children returned home in eight years. In today's episode, Donna talks about her work, her experience, and her current advocacy work on behalf of abducted children and left behind parents, including the book she wrote about her experience titled, I'm Coming Back. Good morning, Donna. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me, Danielle. I know that your advocacy work started because of you and your son's experience with parental abduction. Can you tell us a bit more about what happened to your son? My ex-husband, well, my husband at the time in 1991 had taken our son to Pakistan and returned without him. But he took him there and I had to fight to get him back. And it took me four months to bring him back. But he was four and a half years old. Which year was this in? This was in 1991, August of 1991. Wow. So I'm assuming that the situation when it comes to parental abduction, the awareness, even the laws around parental abduction were very different in 1991 compared to 2022. Can you tell us a bit about those challenges that you faced? Well, the treaties, there were no treaties at that time as far as with the country where my son was in Pakistan. There was limited information. At the time, there was just no, there wasn't as much information as it is now. Like you have books and you have movies and things of that sort. There weren't that many. And then when you went to law enforcement, they had no idea what to do. You went to a lawyer, they had no idea what to do. It was just, it was, it was horrific back at that point in time. So it was, it's come a long way because I see that there's more kids that have been brought back, which is amazing. And so that means that there's more treaties and there's more more of a communication uh, aspect that's going on at this time. I mean, it's pretty amazing that it, it just three or four months you were able to get your son back from Pakistan, which I assume is a country that even today, I'm not sure if I'm 100% correct, but probably doesn't, you know, parental abduction is not illegal. And in 1991, when there was little to no awareness about the issue. So can you walk us through how you were able to successfully get your son back to the States? Well, one thing I did was I had to stay focused on the prize. My prize was my son. So I always saw him as the Academy Award. And I always thought to myself, you got to have a script for everything you're going through. Then I had to strengthen myself. And when I say a script, you had your family, you had friends, you had to deal with them at times. And then I cut them off at times, or I put someone in charge to deal with them so I can get my, stay focused on what I had to do. I just, I didn't see anything outside of getting my son. I, I wouldn't let anything stop me from retrieving him. And you're going through a lot of emotional states. So you're going to have to listen. I listened to a lot of faith tapes. I had to hear the impossible. And if I had to cry, I cried. Whatever it took, 
but I was focused all at the same time. It was rather amazing because I had a house, I had a job, I worked at Marymount University and had a house, a car. So I was still moving, but I, I, I surrounded myself with positive people. I had the students at the university constantly doing fundraisers for me. So I had that type of support. So it's rather hard because you have your family can be your best friend and your worst enemy at a time that you're going through this emotional state. So I chose to block people off this time when, you know, I just stopped taking calls or I tell them, listen, if you don't have prayer money or going to take the, take care of things around my house, don't call me, you know. And so people would call me back and they were like precise on what they could actually do instead of talking to me because I was building up my faith or I was building up my strength to do whatever I had to do to get my son back. And that's what I did. So I really love the fact that like you just went directly to mindset because usually when you ask left behind parents, you know, what, what are you doing or what did you do? Now they walk you through the different legal proceedings or, you know, filed a Hague case, et cetera. But um, I think it's very powerful that you got yourself in the right mindset motivated yourself so that you could basically continue a fight that for some parents can last years in reality. Well, I knew I wanted my son back quick. We're trained. I think our minds are trained. Oh, I got to go talk to this person. Oh, I got to talk to that person. I didn't talk to anybody. You know, at one point, I got to a point where I had to only believe the impossible and that's it. That's all I listened to tapes on it. The impossible being made the possible. And I had to believe faith. I had to stay in church, stay around people that believe everything, everything's possible. And I couldn't hear no. Everything, everywhere I went, it was no, there's no treaties. We can't house you. We can't escort you. That was the State Department. You're on your own. And I was like, wow. And then I had political people in my family. So my dad and Senator Bob Dole were good friends. So I had a little uh, leeway in that way. I mean, I had the State Department call me at one point and they were like, why would you have Senator Bob Dole send us a letter to have back to the ambassador in Pakistan? I says, my father is friends with Senator Bob Dole and my father is a grandfather and he's gonna go to the furthest extended away to get his grandson home, but we don't know who other family members know. And then he was like, I'm sending it out now. So sometimes I had to take that stance, but you have to sit down. It's hard for you to go through it when you're emotionally distraught. So you do have to get a group or certain people you know will have your back and be strong for you, you know, to collect the monies for you from family members. I had one cousin. She would make sure that every family member was aware that finances was needed. And so she's the one, she was my buffer. She was the one that stood in the gap and did the collection plate around the tables of family members, you know, on my behalf. So I didn't hear about it. She just sent me a check. So sometimes you got to keep these people away from you so you can get strength. And, you know, when I say these people, your family, your friends that can actually stop your growth. Um, I felt the legal way, it was too much. I, it just, it would take too long. You need it. Yes, it's come a long way from what I hear now. But at that time, it was always a no. Everything was door. Doors were closing left and right. It was always, we can't, we can't. And I'm like, well, who can? That's the way I talked to the State Department. Well, who can? Can I talk to people who got their kids? We can't give that information out. I was like, well, I need to talk to people who actually got their kids because I'm, I'm listening to you. When I call you or talk to the police or talk to the lawyers, it's always, it's impossible. So now I have to move on to possible. 
And they got scared of me at times. The State Department would call me, and I wouldn't mention their names, but would call me and say, are you are you going back over there again? You know, because they were scared because I went two times in two weeks. And But I was smooth. I stayed with the family. I sat with my husband. I made everything seem like it was okay, you know? So there's many ways, many ways. And through your mindset, keeping that communications open with that other partner is very important. And if you have to remember when you were in love with that person, and it's going to kill you, it almost killed me to think about, oh my God, I got to talk to him about how much I still love him. Why did this happen to us? You know, so I had to go into that mode. And then when I saw the family, I had to play it off with them too. But anything to get you know, I think of Malcolm X by any means necessary, you know, and it's funny because I would go over there and say, okay, put on your act while I'm taking the flight to Pakistan back and forth, put on this, you know, you're in a different scene now and you have to deal with it. So, but I wanted my son back and he, I got him back. So he's 35 now. (laughs) That's amazing. So I just want to go back to something you mentioned before. And I think this is so important is a lot of left behind parents feel very isolated and alone. Uh, Others don't get what they need. Uh, I'm sorry, they don't understand what they're going through. They judge them. They assume things that they shouldn't assume. And I love the fact that you basically, you had a team around you, almost like, you know, like a little business or whatever you want to call the community group, everybody going out. So you had your cousin collecting donations. Like, did you have other people that were supporting you and how? I had the students, the students from Marymount University, they're in Virginia, Arlington, Virginia. They would come in my office and they were always rooting me on. They were always coming into my office with a check. And I'm like, where'd you get this check from? You know, so they were there. The students pulled together and they did all kinds of fundraisers for me, which I didn't know, you know, but they were pushing, pushing for me. My church, the church was supporting me as far as inspiration. It wasn't financial as much with them. Uh, my cousin was doing the financial, the school university the students were raising funds that was basically i listened to faith tapes believe god and that the impossible was the possible and then i started visualizing myself being in the lion's den you know daniel in the lion's den and how god shut up the mouth of the of the lion that he wasn't killed and how shadrach meshach and abednego was in the fiery furnace and god was dancing with them and you know down in the fiery furnace you know and the head on their head was cinched so i had to believe that god was going to be with me everywhere i went so i had to go into that mode i couldn't go into oh i'm dying i didn't go into my own i tried to go out it was like an out of body experience you know like i'm going to go and believe beyond myself which is human which i could just probably just fall out and die, you know, because it gets very depressing. And it could be, but I wouldn't let myself get depressed. So I stayed in a lot of inspirational and whatever faith anybody is, you know, like used that part of yourself because it's it, this is something like you've never seen before when you go through these situations. It's horrific. Yeah, it's extremely powerful what you use to to get yourself through it and to and to get your son back. So was was it that your son was he was taken from the US over to Pakistan. Oh, did you? Did your husband at the time say they were on vacation and he just didn't return? Yes, he said they were on vacation. I had just miscarried. So I came home to note that he went to Pakistan with our only son, you know, at the time. And that was rather strange because how does one just, 
I just got home from the hospital and I knew something was wrong, but I talked to my son every day. You know, I just called over to Pakistan like twice a day sometimes and talked to my son. And so my husband returned without our son. And he said, our son's going to stay there and learn Islam, period. That's it. And I was, you know, you just lost a child. So it's like, what are you doing? You know, so I right away start going to, I went to the police. We could go arrest him. And I was like, well, what if he becomes Rumpelstiltskin and sits in the prison for the rest of his life with a long beard and long hair? And he thinks he's doing something for what he believes. I can't do that. At least I'm in communications with him. And then I went to the State Department. It was the same thing, you know, and I didn't see where anyone was actually focusing on my kid. I got to get my kid. It's Forget about him. I could deal with him. I need to get my kid. That was my focus. And because you can get sidetracked listening to a lot of people, you know, and if you focus on what your goal is, you know, you got to reach within yourself to get the strength, you know, through God. It's a supernatural thing, you know, in my eyes. But he came back without our son. And then my mother talked to him. I talked to him. He said he's going back. So he went back to Pakistan. Then I went over to Pakistan because he didn't come back. And when I went the first time, uh, I sat with the family. I tried to talk with the sisters and the mother and father had already passed away. But I tried to talk to the elders to find out what's the problem, because I never had a problem with my husband prior. And we were married at that time, eight and a half years. So he just told me to go home, go home, pack your things and come back and move to Pakistan. So I went, I act like I was, you know, I went home, of course. But on the plane, I cried. Here I am crying again. (laughs) But I always cried away from them. I always kept all my emotions away from the situation. But I got on the plane and I came back and I ended up getting a passport for my son, you know, because back then you could just get a, well, I had to get a picture of my son. And back then anyone could get a passport. So it's a little different now. I think both parents got to get an agreement for the passport, however it goes. But back then I had a little picture and then I came back to the embassy in Pakistan, I came right back the next week. I flew right back and I didn't sell anything because I wasn't moving there, but I came back and went directly to the embassy and they worked on a passport. So they do stuff. They can do things, but they watch to see what you're doing because they'll tell you, we can't house you. We can't escort you. But when you start moving in a certain direction, they know what the, the certain direction, because they know what they would do for a senator's kids, for the for the po- political uh, realm's kids, you know, a president's kid. That's a separate entity than, than the civilians. OK, so people have to remember that. It sounds good when they're telling you what to do or whatever. And, and it's OK. But when you get closer to doing what, what needs to be done, you'll see something else work on your behalf. But. I got got that done. I came back to the hotel. Then I found out that my husband left the country. He eventually went to Japan. So I'm kind of briefing it up. He went to Japan and he said he's teaching English there. He left. And so I'm stuck in Pakistan the second time and he left the country. And I got on a flight right away. The nephew came and got me. And then he was shocked that I came back. And I told him, well, I wanted to come back because I was going along with you know my husband, what he wanted to do as far as moving there. And uh, he's not here. And they're like, no, he's in Japan, you know? And I was like, Japan? And my son's with them. And they're like, yes. So this is two times in, in two weeks. I'm in Pakistan. A lot of money when you're paying all these other things at home. And so I flew back to America. 
And a week later, my husband calls me collect from Japan at my job. And I told him, I can't take the number. Please give me the number. I'll call him back because I needed a number. And that was the whole thing. So I took the number and my husband told me my son was with him. And then a week later, he told me, I lied to you. I said, you lied to me? Our son was hidden from you the second time you went. So it was it was devastating at that point, too. And when he told me that, I just told him the first thing that came to me was to tell him, forget it, forget it. You messed our child up. You keep him. Goodbye. And I hung him up because everything was in his court for so long. So now I'm going to I'm going to throw everything back the other way. I'm going to reverse it. And I just told him, keep the kid. You messed him up. Goodbye. Don't ever contact me again. And when I hung him up, it scared him. You know, and then he began calling me, calling me, calling me. And I took the call and I said, come home. That's all. Be a family. You left our son there. Leave him there. Come home. And he came home. And I had a friend of mine that watched. uh, She was a travel agent. And so it's good to have a lot of friends in various areas. And so he wouldn't tell me when he was coming back to America. This was the second time without our son. And he wouldn't tell me. And a friend of mine that was a travel agent was monitoring the Japanese airlines and he was on that flight, which he didn't know that I knew. So when he came home, I was like, oh, I knew you were coming home. Oh, my God. You know, I had to go back into my script again, a different script, (laughs) you know, because my focus was always on my kid Academy Award. And he allowed me to visit the son uh, for four days. And so who visits a kid for four days? But I went along with wherever he was in his mind. Sure, four days, yeah. So I went over to Pakistan, sat with the family, saw my son again. And the family came and my husband called me the third night. And he says, are you leaving? And I'm like, no, I'm not going anywhere. My son has dark circles under his eyes. His skin color is discolored due to lack of vitamins and nutrition. I'm not leaving. And he said, I'm going to have them put you on the street. I said, have them put me on the street. You kill the body. You can't kill the spirit. I will haunt this family for the rest of their life if I get killed here because I'm ready to die. And it's a pretty sad place that you put me in. And I threw the phone across the room and the whole family was in shock. I mean, I'm saying it very nice now, but I probably was very loud because I was very much irritated from everything. And the family took me to the brother's house the next day and they took my son to the store and didn't return with him. And the uncles and everybody came over and they're like, go back to America, reconcile with your husband. He loves you. He's there in America and reconcile with him and come back and and see your kid in a year. And I was like, really? And I just started crying because here's the emotions again. But I stood in the middle of the floor and I told the whole family, when your mother died in London, I was there with your father like he was my father. And your father stayed with us for one year. And then your father died on a plane coming from Mecca to Riyadh to visit the brother. And he had a heart attack. And I said, and we came here and I came here and consoled all of you. And I'm not I'm not your enemy, but I guess I am. I didn't know I was your enemy. How do you do your enemies? Because I never did nothing to none of you. And they just looked at me and the sisters started crying, one of the sisters, because it was very emotional. I stood my ground. And I got, they were like, where do you want to go? I said, I want to go to the airport. And so I ran out and screamed for a taxi because taxis were in the area. And I got into the taxi and the nephew jumped on the car and he's like, it's dangerous out here. I said, it's more dangerous out here or in your house. You don't want me in your house tonight, believe me. And they knew it. And so we got to, I got in the cab and I went straight to the embassy and they were closed because after hours, the military, the Pakistani military runs the embassy, American embassy after hours. And I asked them to give me the phone book with the vice council's name 
you know, the phone book with the numbers. And so they gave it to me and I called the vice council and it was a new vice council. And she told me to check into Holiday Inn in Islamabad, the capital. So I checked in. I went in and I just told him, I'm here on embassy business. I want a 50% discount. I don't even know where these words came from, but I was like in one of these survival modes, this warrior mode. I don't know. I was just kind of like, I'm I'm moving on this, you know. And so I got up to my room and there was a hotel directory. And I looked through the hotel directory and I don't know, you know, like God leading me, but I looked through and one point I saw travel, room service. I didn't need any of that. And then I saw a church and I called the church and it didn't have the name of the church. I just called and um, I told the pastor, the priest, he was English. And I told him what I had gone through and, and, and could he help me? And he said he tried several times unsuccessfully to help people and they left there devastated. And I said, you're going to help me, Father John. And I screamed and I said, due to the fact that you preach faith every Sunday and you're going to help me. And he went, I might know someone who knows someone. That's all they could say, because he didn't want to be involved in his church being, you know, whatever happens in those countries, you know, in certain countries. And so he prayed with me and then I checked into the embassy the next day and they were shocked. They were like, I don't know how you got this guy. So what guy? Well, the guy that you actually got through the priest, he's a CIA operative. He had my sister call back to the family and say that my sister said, we apologize. Our family apologizes to your family for any inconvenience our sister caused because they were saying that, you know, the woman is always to blame for everything, you know, over in that that region. And so he moved me to a, a safe house. And in two weeks, they got a warrant for the whole family to be detained. We had to get money under the table. So it was a lot of bribe under the table. And Benez Arbuto was in it back then. So we went way up to the top with the CIA operative who had a lot of contacts. And we got a warrant to have the whole family detained. And they were detained. And they couldn't get arrested, but they were held until the kids showed up. So the sister had to go get my son and bring him to the police station. And I walked in and the whole family was flabbergasted. They almost fainted like it was a ghost that walked in. And I got my son. It was Christmas Eve of 1991. So it took four months. So I got my son and I went out the front door. I had Christmas Day. The embassy personnel had dinner at her house, which was amazing because they said they can't house me. They can't escort me. You're on your own. So I had dinner at her house. She escorted me to the airport, made sure I got on to Lahore. The vice counsel in Lahore picked me up in Lahore, housed me. And he was amazed because I had everybody's address. He says, you're different. You had everybody. You had your the grandmother's address. You had the aunt's address. You had the sister's. I said, I was married to him eight and a half years. I was here when the mother died in London. I was there when the father died, when he brought his body back from Saudi Arabia to Pakistan. I was there in Pakistan. So I had everyone's address. Because I showed them such kindness to get such rudeness. So I did have a lot of in communications, addresses, all this is very important. And never start arguing with your husband on the phone or your wife. You know, I stayed very calm. I had to get into his world a lot, you know, and it killed me, you know. So if you have to go to counseling while you're going through or write it down or find ways of doing it, but 
I got my son back. And when I got him back to the hotel, I called my parents. They thought they were going to have a heart attack when they heard my son's voice. And, you know, and I got on the plane and I came back to America. And it, it took me in the Chicago Sometimes Washington Post was there. They wrote up articles and I was on the news. But, you know, and then the State Department personnel took me out to eat. And I said, why were you so, why were you calling me so rudely every day or every other day? You guys were going off on me. Was I getting too close to the situation or causing an international incident? You know, but he said one of the things that they do is they don't want to cause an international incident. And so they were amazed, you know, how they said, you're the only one that went out the front door and had the family detained. So mine was a lot different. They couldn't get arrested, but they were rounded up. So I made the right connection. I believe it was just God, but that's that's just me. But I moved I moved on everything and I wouldn't let my emotions get the best of me. And I, I noticed that when I worked on cases, a lot of people were like so devastated because it is devastating. You know, so I don't want to go any further, but that's how I got my son back. Amazing. Amazing. And, and what happened to your husband, your ex-husband? Well, back then there were no international parental abduction laws, so he couldn't get arrested. He actually stayed in America. He's in America to this day. He works for the airlines in D.C. And he was with Pan Am back then. And he's with American. He's been with American for 20 years. So or 30 years or something. I don't know. He's married again. He married a Pakistani woman. He has three kids that are in college. And my son's in touch with him off and on. I think he came to see my son about a week ago or something. But you know, he don't, he doesn't stay at my son's house. My son's married. He has three beautiful kids. So they call him, they don't even call him grand granddad. They call him dad's, this is dad's father, <laughs> you know? So there is no connection because he doesn't, you know, he's kind of detached from them. So that's what happened. There were no parental abduction laws back then. So I couldn't even do anything with them. He got supervised visitation for a long time. Then it came to just regular visitation and it changed as time went, you know, and then your child, the children love both parents. And sometimes that's the killer because they do love both parents and they should. You know, I've had to have counseling to understand all of that myself. And then you got to release all of that anger. And I've learned to forgive because forgiveness is for myself. He has called me, here it is years and years later, crying on the phone. I'm sorry for everything I put you through and, you know, whatever it is, you know. Uh, But I told him I forgive because God wants me to forgive for myself, not for him, for myself. I told him, keep in touch with your, you know, you call your son on his cell phone, but never call my house again. You had a jewel. You tried to destroy it. It only got shinier. So that's how I talk to him. I don't. And, and I told him the only time I'm going to talk to you is if it's pertaining to our son. Other than that, I can't go into his world ever again. I mean, it's pretty amazing. You, you went from, you know, having your child abducted by the father to later in the years having unsupervised visitation. Like, I'm assuming you were super worried that he would take off with your son again. How did you basically mitigate the risk that 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 wouldn't happen? Well, it was a dark time in my life. Very dark, you know, because you can't believe that you just did such a heroic thing. And because there were no treaties, like I would be a hero to this day. I probably have a, you know, motion picture, you know, movie on, on the screen, you know, due to the fact of how my son was able to be taken, you know, gotten out of Pakistan because I thought I did something heroic, but it didn't work that way. It was still the rights of both parents. Supervised, I got one of the students. He was he was a Marine and he went to school at Marymount. So he was I paid him to supervise the visitation. I had to pay for the person to supervise. 
And then he ended up getting custody years later. And yes, I was afraid. There were times. That's why I opened up Coming Home International so that I could work on cases to understand customs and to understand. I got to meet a lot of customs agents. I knew that if he went through London, which that's how he normally goes through to go to Pakistan, you know, certain countries that he had to stop in, I knew that I could get him stopped if he took my son. So yes, there were a lot of concerns, but back then judges were very nonchalant. Oh, well, he's shown that he can, he has a good job. He's shown this. It's, it's a problem with the courts. It was a big problem. And it's probably still a problem that you have to educate a lot of judges. And my particular judge, the state department sent her a letter not to give him any visitation. Uh, Senator Bob Dole sent letters, but the judge still, still felt she was in charge of her courtroom. And so you have these egos in the way, a lot of people with egos, there wasn't a lot of awareness. And so all, all judges would see is that you're keeping the child away from the father, even if you got him back. It was horrible. It was a horrific, horrific, horrific time. <laughs> That's all I could say. And years passed and time changed. Unfortunately, I think we still have some of these challenges, um, but probably a bit better than before. It's a lot better because my son could choose on. He he makes his own choices. He's ready to write his book. My son was in the military. He has a good job with Allstate as a surveyor. You know, he gets his military stuff and and uh, he just bought a house, three bedroom house, three baths. He lives really, he lives pretty good. He's He's leveled out, you know, and he's gone to a lot of counseling. So he's really a cool guy. He's a philosopher. He's He helps a lot of people. I listen to him sometimes when I'm over there. You know, he's talking to people on the phone. He's like a good counselor. But I think because he sees both parents, you get what I'm saying? It sounds crazy, but for kids, they see things a total different way. And my son wasn't there long enough to really, how can I get the total effect he did get it back here, which was pretty sad with our court system. But I always stayed leveled, you know, and if I had to go to counseling, I went to counseling, you know, I went to church. I tried to listen to anything that kept me leveled. And then I tried to protect myself by opening up Coming Home International, working on cases, seeing many ways, understanding there's many ways. And now as long as he feel he he's won, he gets, he has citizenship. He has all these rights. I stopped focusing on that. I just focused on my son being raised, you know, growing up, being a wonderful young man. And that's, you know, that's all I wanted for my son. I didn't think about him anymore. My son was already in America and I had ways of getting my son back now from various countries. So I, I worked on cases to get the, get more of an expertise too, of how to do things. Donna, I know your son was in Pakistan for four months. I'm going to assume that obviously the entire experience affected him. What what effects did you see on your child after he came home? I don't even late years on. Well, because I moved so quickly, uh, I didn't see the effects when he was young because it was four months and I went there three times in four months. So the two times I went in two within two weeks, he saw me that one time, but the third time I went, he saw me again. So I felt that the more he saw me, the more he would know that he was taken. You know, I always said, you're on vacation. How's your cousins? You know, I always had to play it off. But um, years later, because of the things that went on afterwards through the courts, here in my own country, which was horrible, PTSD and a lot of other effects. He was an angry kid because he had to deal with his dad and he had to deal with me. And it was, you know, they go through their thing. And then you have to realize that they love both parents because you're going through your transformation too from everything you went through. 
And I had an angry kid, very angry. And I always told him, I'm not going anywhere. I never went anywhere. I'm always fighting for you, whether it's here, there, here, there. And he took it as that. And then as they grow out of that into their own, they start realizing who you are. You know, and my son would tell his fiance at the time, because they're married, I'm not leaving this lady, you know, because he started realizing who I was. And maybe he realized it through his kids because he had a son at 19, his first kid out of high school. And then he went into the military. He realized, wow, my mother, you know, look how good she is with my kids. And his kids adore me. So he sees things that he wished that he would have had, you know, but I told him you have to give back from what you didn't have. And maybe PTSD, more anger once he got back because it was other things, you know, the courts, the father in court, me in court, you know, even after. So he's transformed into such a young man that's wonderful. And his wife adores him and his kids adore him. I adore him. And um, I mean, he's a greeter at the church. He goes to church and he's a greeter and people love him at the church. He goes to this big mega church out there in Indiana. They love him. They just love him and uh, they don't know his story and we don't talk about it, but it's just so wonderful to see his light shining and his the metamorphosis that took place, the change from his past. And he'd like to write a book and he said, it's going to take him a little time to help others if he can. But yes, you're going to go through a lot. It's a lot that does take place. That's amazing. And I know you, you founded Coming Home International. Can you just tell us a bit more about the, the mission, the work that Coming Home International did? Well, we had a wonderful group of people that worked with us. We had six people. We were like a six-person crew, you know, that worked with me. Two were from Harvard, went to Harvard. One was a lawyer, uh, one from Howard University, a lawyer. And they were Italian. It was funny. One was Italian from Florence because we knew the Italians could go in and out of countries and nobody's aware of what's being done because people love the Italians everywhere, you know, in various countries. They say, oh, you're from Italy, you know, so we had him do a lot of work for us. But we tried to find a happy medium on working on cases. Our mission was to get kids back. And it started when I got back, people start calling me on my job. And I was like, where does it get my number? I don't work for the State Department. I don't, you know, one of the State Department personnel amazed me when I first came back. He said, you're the only one that went out the front door. Family being detained. He took me out to lunch and he said their job was to lower the expectations so there won't be any international incidences. And he did ask me if I wanted to work for the State Department in that department. And I said, oh, no, I'd rather open up my own entity. I do not want to work for you guys. I'm not a puppet on a string. I can't go to tell people that it's impossible. I can't even do that. I don't even know how to talk like that. I can't even think like that. I don't know how to say I can't house you, escort you. I'm going to house you and escort you. You know, I can't say all that to people. You know, that's just not my forte. So that's how that worked. But as far as our organization, it was so wonderful. We came up with so many ideas for cases. And uh, one of my first cases, it was funny, before I even became Coming Home International, I got that going. A lady called me. She was from Philadelphia. Her husband had just taken the kid to India. And he was a doctor. And she was crying on the phone. I was like, where did you get my number from? And she told me, and I was like, I don't work for these people. And I'm at the university working, you know, I'm like, so what's going on? So she told me my kid was taking India, my two kids. And um, my husband's a doctor. I said, did he call you? She said, yes. I said, what did you do? I cursed him out. Don't do that again. Don't do that again. Listen to me. Never do that again. 
Okay. When he calls again, how do you know he's going to call again? He's going to go back home. He's been here 20 years. He's going to go back home and realize why he left his own country. Okay. When he was younger and look at those young kids. Okay. And I says, there's so many opportunities here. He's going to start thinking. So when he calls back again, just say, honey, I didn't know. I didn't understand. Honey, I didn't understand. Just come home so we can all be a family. Don't say, honey, I understand. Bring my kids home. Don't do that. Just say, honey, come home. I had to practice with her. And it worked. And he came back in a week to the Philadelphia airport. And it's in the Philadelphia part how I helped her. But I just taught her how how I would do it. Because it was so soon. And I said, the sooner you get your kids, the better. You got to work it a certain way. And somebody has to direct you that's been through it to tell you. And maybe that's why you're listening to me. But I told her, say it like that. I had to keep practicing with her. And they came back to the Philadelphia airport and she got her kids. And the show, the, the show cops videotaped him coming down the ramp and her arms are open for the kids. He thought that he was going to be the next to get hugged. But the cops were sitting there and they arrested him for international parental abduction because the law had came into effect in 92. So that was 92. But Philadelphia Inquirer wrote me up as far as helping. So we did some amazing things. We sat down one day, my crew, we had an Iraqi case and we sat down with scenarios. And this is when Saddam Hussein was in and in power. And it was the war. You know, he's the, the country was being bombed every day. And we were like, OK, so you this woman's husband took the kid to Iraq, which is really horrible right now to take a kid to Iraq. OK, with the war going on. So we tried to think of something to do, you know, so we came up with this scenario that she had cancer. And I had a doctor friend that wrote up some paperwork to say she had cancer. And then we had insurance guy that wrote up that she had a $100,000 policy that she wanted to leave her son and she only had six months to live. So we sent the paper. We had her girlfriend call him in Iraq and say, your wife is dying. She wants to leave behind, you know, Kusei, this amount of money. And of course he wants to leave. He's looking for a way out. <laughs> okay. And... um He ended up bringing the kid back because he took the paperwork and he took it to the doctor over in Iraq, looked at the insurance paper. Uh, He saw he felt that it was real. And so he came back and the FBI was waiting for him at the airport. And this was in Baltimore. And they were waiting for him. And they told him if he passed customs, he's going to prison for international child abduction. But she got her son. And so she still has her son to this day. So we would march in front of embassies downtown D.C. because I lived in D.C. or well in D.C. on Connecticut Avenue. And we marched on all the embassies on Mass Avenue, wherever the kids were. We had a Lebanese case and I worked with the ambassador of Lebanon. And it just comes to me what to do. It's really strange, but it just comes to me naturally. I went there because I couldn't help the lady get her kid out of Lebanon at the time because it was a lot going on. But I sat with the Lebanese ambassador and just talked with him. And I says, you know, you need some type of... Um, positivity happening towards our with our government and your government. And why can't we try to mediate a situation where the mother could go over to Lebanon and mediate a situation of seeing her child, which she hasn't seen in eight years. And I said, that would be a plus. That would be a feather in your cap that you're showing that you could be a little more logical, especially when with parents, the, the left behind parent. So I sat and talked with him and I was real calm and talking and we had a good talk. And he says, OK, OK. So he had his aide work with him on a place to mediate a situation with my client. And it worked. 
you know? So it's stuff like that. It's how you do it. We had an Iran case and we sent our Italian guy over there and he just went over saying that he had the wrong address more than likely, but he thought it was his friend's address when he knocked on the door of the parent that took the two kids. And he says that he had a carpet business and of course, they're going to invite him in because it's always hospitable. You know, people are hospitable in various regions. They said, come on in. And he talked about his carpet business because we knew the background of the husband. He loves business. So we always looked at the whole scene. I had to, you know, when we talked to a client, we listened. I asked a lot of questions because I had to know about what the husband likes. What is he like? What's the family like? Do you have an address for him? Logistics. You know, we had our own dramatic scene, you know, on all of our cases. It was funny because we had people write up scripts, you know, here's our, here's our script for our client. This is how she's going to react, you know, when her husband calls. So we did a lot of stuff. It was a lot of acting and a lot of, but he went into the house and uh, took pictures with the kids and with him and invited him over to Florence, Italy, because we had business cards and he had a friend that has a, has a carpet business in Florence. So we were trying to get him over there. You know, he didn't come, but we worked on that kind of, you know, heavily, but we had pictures with the kids and the husband with our, with our guy inside their house. So we, we were funny at times, you know, some of our work and I, I hate to even tell my inside, but all of our uh, cases were different. Every single one was individually done. We didn't try to get so legal, but I can see now where it's really good that it is done, that you do go through the paperwork, that you do report your situation and that you should call the local police. You know, all the paperwork is in, in place. National Center for Missing Sported Children report to them. You know, you got to have all your reports. You got to have addresses. You got to think of a whole bunch of stuff before you move into it. Because when you move into it too quickly, you're using your emotions. You know, so I had to do it so many different ways with clients because I got better at it as time went, you know, so there you are. <laughs> That's amazing. And how many children were you able to get returned when you, when you had coming home international? 12 kids out of a hundred, 12. 12. Mm -hmm. Amazing. That's amazing. Based on your clients that, you know, those, those 12 children you were able to get returned. Do you have any specific advice? Um, based on what you saw through them on on how parents can handle reunification and the after effects of abduction? You know, I never stayed up with my clients once I get their kids. I usually had another case right afterwards. I don't even know. And maybe I should do something in reference to that because I still probably can get in touch with a lot of my clients, ex-clients to see what happened to them. I was still going through my own, at times upset because I didn't have chance to really grasp on to what I had just gone through. I, I was, I was just, people start calling me as soon as I got back, you know, so I never had a chance to really think on it, but I'll just say this much. Once you've gotten back with your kid, give them a lot of love. You know, love is very important. Be attentive, listen to them because they're, they're going to talk to you as any kid would when they're going through something. And if they're acting out, it's because something's going on within them. With my clients, I usually left because I, I had other cases. Um, so I can't really tell you what they personally went through, but they were ecstatic when they got their kids because they call me and they were so happy and they had the newspaper call me or something to be in the newspaper about my helping them. You know, it was a lot of excitement for a lot of them. I don't know where it went from there. So I don't know. I went because I was still going through my court cases. I was still in and out of court. My, my ex-husband was trying to bankrupt me all the time because he was so mad that I went to his country and got my kid out. So, you know, it made him angry. And then he, I made him think he won because he was still in America. He won. He won. 
Are you happy? You know, so it drove him crazy mentally, you know, so it's a different story with mine. But my only advice is just show your kids love counseling by themselves and counseling with yourself, you know, with them to sit down with the counselor because they won't know where to place those things. My son did not know where to place his angers, his anger. And the military was good for him because it disciplined him. And he got to see things a different way because he was in there four years and he understood a lot of stuff. He wrote me many letters, you know, many letters and how he deals with his dad now is so different. So I, I think many parents that would be listening now would love to hear looking back at the cases that you handled as well as your own case, your son, like what would be maybe the, the top three things that you think parents really need to get sorted out or to focus on? Because obviously they're being pulled left and right from, you know, the government, legal professionals, family. What are the top three things they should be focusing on to get their child back? Well, you have to separate yourself from a lot of negativity that might be around you. I had to do that. Because like I said, your family could be your best friends and your worst enemy, you know, because they're going through emotional stuff too, because it's either their grandchild, their niece or nephew, you know, so you're going to hear a lot of stuff. I heard so much stuff like you married them. Look where my grandkid is, you know, so there's a lot of emotional stuff that goes on. And um, and then you have people that want to help. And then they're they're not even helpful, really. They're they're somewhere else and helping in another fashion. But I would say separate yourself from anything that's negative. I'm not saying because you're going to need your family. Don't get me wrong. It's a weird thing that you're going to have to do or either you're going to have to have somebody in charge to do the work for you while you're going through your emotional uh, whatever it is, you know, but you have to take steps. I always say prayer, number one, but call the police. You know, you have to call and do the the missing persons reported to the National Missing Exploited Children, obtained temporary legal custody. Uh, you have to search on your own, like through family contacts. I know I'm going a little further, but uh, maintain good relations with all the family members of the of the, of the other parent. You know, of course, contact the State Department. You're going to have to go through those, those steps. You know, your passport, go to the passport just to revoke your husband's and child's passports, if that should be the case. Contact the immigration and naturalization, if that should be the case. Make a list of information about each partner, about your partner and the families. Whatever you have in that regards. Okay. And also pursue that local criminal, you know, whatever the criminal charges that you could place on them. So I just mentioned several, I mean, more than what you had asked me the first three, but you, that, that main thing is you're devastated. You're devastated. I was devastated. And I had to, I had to remove myself from certain things so that I could stay focused and it's not easy and you can't do it on your own, you know? So you're going to have to Find somebody that you can really trust that's not judgmental. That's a big thing. You know, maybe one or two or maybe three and assign them things to do because you can't do everything you want to, but you need that support mechanism and you have to let them know, don't be critical, you know, when you're talking to them because they've never seen you like this. You're, you know, I know I was in like, oh my God, at first, but I learned how to do it. I learned to shut people out and just listen to faith or listen to positive inspirational music. If you're yoga, do yoga, meditate, whatever it is, you're going to have to get to that point because it's, it's something out of your hands. It's something beyond belief, you know, and you hear your kid crying late at night. And I would lay in bed and I could hear my son crying out, mommy, you know, mommy. And it's sad because you're like, oh my 
God, I can't get to him, you know? And then I said, I got to get to him because I heard his voice again, you know? So it's, it's a lot you're going through. And then you have to separate all that. If you have to go to counseling, go to counseling, learn where to put all that stuff, but don't prolong the longer it is because communications with your husband or your wife is the biggest thing. If you have to go back where you first fell in love, because their mind is a different place too. So you got to go into their world of thought sometimes, not go exactly there, but when it comes to mental and emotional, I had to talk to my husband like I was still in love with him. And it was crazy. And I wanted to gag. You know, when I get off the phone, it was like, is oh my God, you know, and I'd laugh sometimes because I said, God, you got a sense of humor, you know. And I talked to God, you know, it was just like out loud, like, oh my God, I can't believe I just told this guy, you know, all of this stuff. But there's a ways of drawing him back. There's ways of uh, talking to his family, you know, their family. You don't have to bow down to them, but keep the lines of communications open. And a lot, the first thing you want to do is scream and you want to go off and you don't want to talk to them and you want to get angry. And, and I was angry in the beginning when my husband came back the first time, you know, and we fell down some steps. It was really weird because he never knew that side of me. I just grabbed his ankles and we started falling down these steps and we laughed at the bottom step because he never seen me like that. And, I, and he didn't know I was, <laughs> and we laughed and he's like, oh my God. I said, just go get our son. And we just started laughing because I tried to act like it was nothing because I tried to go where he was in his mind, you know, but he was somewhere else. And that might have been the real him all along. It just came on the surface. You know, it, it, it showed its ugly head. I don't know. And I was married eight and a half years. So there you are. These are great tips and advice that you're giving for parents of children abducted. We also have a growing number of parents that are reaching out to find my parent whose children aren't abducted but they're at risk for abduction. There are real um, worries among these parents um, that their children may be abducted, especially internationally. So they might have a little bit of like time on their side to prevent that abduction or at least have everything prepared so that if an abduction takes place, they can work hard to get the child back as soon as possible. So what would be your advice to those parents who are really worried about abduction? What can they do practically to prevent and, and prepare themselves? I would try to get State Department letters, a letter from the State Department indicating what happens when a child is taken to that particular country. I would try to get a letter from a senator or congressman in that area of expertise. You know, so because some of those letters, they do matter. It depends on which state. Virginia was different. But you got to have some type of pull behind you. You know what I'm saying? So you got to have somebody that has the expertise. If you can get something from the National Missing Exploited Children or the police department stating how many kids have been taken from that area. But you got to let the judge understand or expert. You know, when I was working on cases or heard of other people with cases back then, you know, in 91, 92, a lot of them had experts to come in and speak to the judge, you know, as an expert witness of what takes place in these countries. So that always helped. Because the judge is always looking for some other avenues, you know what I'm saying? Like to, to rule on, you know, how can I, I can't rule on this because some of the judges, they never been out of their own state or their own countries, you know? So I would say, try to get as many political letters or advocacy letters or an expert witness to come in and make the, the judge aware. Because a lot of judges aren't educated to a lot of stuff. They go by the book. This is what we've been doing. This is how we do it. And uh, we're going to continue doing it this way. And they just, you know, until somebody comes out 
with something that can educate them, you know, that's going to make them aware because they're not aware. You could talk all you want in those courtrooms and your husband, he's coming back counterattacking with all that he wants to say. But when you have an expert, you know, to say what actually happens in those countries and how many kids have been taken and what takes place when they can't house and escort you. Because I, you know, I had kids, I had people bring the booklet from the State Department. We can't house you. We can't escort you, you know. So this way the judge can be aware because they're not, they're not going to do their research. The judges are just ruling on what, what the prosecutor or the, the defense attorney brings to them. You know what I'm saying? So whatever you're bringing and compiling as far as information that's how the judge is going to get their learning uh, curve, you know, unless you can have courtrooms do classes on these cases to educate them. Because I know when I first went through and came back with my son, St. Albans, which is where all the president's kids and stuff go to St. Albans, you know, whatever, and the school there. And they had me come over and speak before law, you know, legal. It was a lot of attorneys, police agencies, John Walsh's people were there. So the most wanted, you know, they were there. And I always had a client with me. And then I told my story, but I had my client talk about her story and we're working on on the case. And then it was question and answer. So there was a lot of questions because they weren't aware. The judges, you know, the lawyers didn't know where do we, this is all new. So more educational tools. But for that parent, I would say get as many letters. And if you can get an expert, somebody who's been through it to kind of get on the stand to talk about it, but it has to be in your area because sometimes judges are like, well, each country is different. You know, there's another situation. So I would try to get somebody that's over these different uh, areas of expertise, especially at the up on Capitol Hill, whoever's in that, whoever your senator is or congressman, because it impresses the judge. I told you there's the elite and there's the civilians. You bring something where the judge, they're on the same level you'll see a different response. And when you keep coming in and you're hollering at the judge, she deals with people like that all the time. You know what I'm saying? And their egos get in the way until they hear from somebody that's on the same level, you know, or maybe another judge, or maybe there's an attorney that can say that, no, we do a lot of cases, just letters. Sometimes just those letters, they help or expert. So, but don't go in with your emotions. And I mean, you can and you can't, But you got to know when and when not, you know, but I would take as many letters that are experts because the judge's eyebrows will go up when they see the State Department or with my judge. She looked at Senator Bob Dole's personal letter that was sent to me, you know, or sent to her. And then Rutherford Institute, who makes laws up on Capitol Hill, they wrote a letter to the judge. So I had people that kind of wrote letters and they were aware of all these situations because they deal with it every day whether it's on Capitol Hill or the State Department or National Center. And the State Department might say, we can't do it, we can't do it, or we'd have to do it for everybody. I don't know. I don't know how they talk now, but they used to go off on me all the time. But you got to get as many. I start getting letters from senators and congressmen, and the judge's eyebrows will go a certain way because they're the same peers. Remember, they're looking for their own peers. You mean nothing to them. You're just one of these people that come to her courtroom or his courtroom And they're hollering and screaming, it's family court. But when you say, Your Honor, I have statistics, you know, let your lawyer do it. Let your lawyer talk for you. Because you might go off, you might get all angry or upset because it's it's close to home. It's really close to home. So that's all, you know, 
And back in my day, not to be funny, back when I was going through, they had the underground. People were hiding kids way back then. It was a big thing. So it's another story. And you hate to even think like that. You'd rather just go through the court system. If you, you know, I'm just saying that's the best way because you'll get yourself in all kinds of situations. But I would just have as many letters because that's what the judge is going to respond to. They don't respond to you. You're just a person in the courtroom and your husband's just a person in the courtroom and the lawyers are just a little above y'all, you know, until you get somebody that's on her level. So the state department would be above her. The, the senator would be way above her. The congressperson would be way above her. And that's how you have to think about it. You know, what letters can I get? Who can I get? Who can I get to be an expert? Yeah, that's great advice. So earlier you talked a lot about how the State Department was, you know, basically provided zero help until you would basically got your child back and there was not much left for them to do. So they kind of came in and rallied and supported you at the end. And I hear this from a lot of other left behind parents. If they're American, then it will be the lack of support from the State Department or the embassy if they happen to be abroad. And even from other nationalities, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or whatever the equivalent of the State Department is in their country, they just are not actively involved in providing real support. So like, what would be your advice to parents how to manage that relationship with the government entity that is tasked with returning children? I mean, you know, on paper. Well, I would just try to get all the paperwork I can. That's what I would advise. Get everything you can, whether it's from the National Center for Misexploited, Children, the police, making that missing per because all those paperwork is going to come in handy to a degree. Keep your eyes on the prize. You know, when I was doing all the paperwork, I was so robotic. I didn't get my heart into it. I just robotically did what needed to be done. But I knew somewhere along the line it might work. But I would try to get as many congressional senators letters because the more really there's many levels. There's the civilian and then there is the elite. Okay, not trying to be funny, but I had a little leeway because my dad was friends with Senator Bob Dole. You know, at the end, it worked with Senator Baudot. You get what I'm saying? So I would get in touch with as many political people letters because people react totally different when they see letters. You know, I'm going to pull forward a little bit, you know, further as far as years. I end up moving to Malta years and years later, and I work my cases from Malta. And I was in, I went there and I fell in love with the island. I came back and got a proposal done up by my friend who was on my committee as far as working with my organization. And she went to Harvard Law School. So she wrote me up a beautiful proposal. And I went in and they gave me two years tax-free. It took two weeks to get the approval. But when I went through the customs and showed them the letter, they said, what's your purpose for visiting Malta? You know, the second time I went, I showed them my letter from the government, from the embassy to meet the foreign affairs minister and expatriate affairs minister who gives out the work permits. They looked at the official letter, closed on my suitcase and said, have a good time in Malta. But what I'm saying to you is there's the elitist. Okay. You're just a civilian. Okay. I was just a civilian, but my dad wasn't, you know, my dad knew a lot of political people. And so things move, as you can see in the world today, politically, it's who, you know, okay. And not to be funny, but I knew God too. You know, I trusted God above all, but there were political people in our family that were pulled in or that knew politics or new people that were in the higher ups. So I'll just say whatever you can do, make those political ties because you got, you got the elitists 
and then you're at the you're down here or in the middle. But that the they work on the, the elites work a little faster, you know, when you know a politician, because they can make a call if it's another politician's kid and they can get them out of there like it's nothing. But they'll make all the civilians wait longer. So the more political pull you have, it helps. Uh, when I moved to Malta, I had a letter from the embassy. And when I went through customs, the first thing they, they asked me were, what is your purpose for visiting Malta? And I said, well, I'm here to meet the expatriate affairs minister and the foreign affairs minister. And they looked at my letter, closed up my suitcase and said, have a good time in Malta. And I was moved on because of that letter. <laughs> okay. And not to be funny, but if, if you're going to sit and just cry all the time, you got to build yourself up. I just say, build yourself up from within, go down to some political offices, go up on Capitol Hill, uh, make some calls for the people in your area, make it a crusade, you know, have somebody work that while you're working other stuff. When you're talking to that husband or wife, go back when you first fell in love with them because you were with them. You already know their weak points. You know, not to be funny, but you talk to them, you still love them. Like, I don't know where we went wrong. It's a script. You're just going to, there are many actors that got Academy Awards that didn't like each other, but they won the Academy Award. And you would have thought that they were in love with each other on the screen. So focus on your, your, your kid. I got to get my kid. What does it take? I got to get my kid. What can I do? You know, I'm still in touch with my husband or my wife. What can I say to them? These are all thoughts. How do I talk to them? Should I take acting lessons? Because I hate him or I hate her. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to bite your tongue and you're going to have to go another way. And what I like my mother would tell me when I was going through, she says, you know, he's crazy. You're going to have to go into his mode because he's thinking a whole nother way. You know, and see, I wasn't thinking that way. I was thinking American way. You know, I was like, well, why are you doing this? You know, you can't you got to go where his mind is. You don't bow down to them. You just say, so what's going on? Where do we go wrong? Why do we go through this? We have a child. We loved each other one time. Remember when we went to Hawaii? Or remember when we took this trip? Remember how we used to be? You have to do all that, you know, to bring down. I was always thinking to bring down their wall, whether it was the parents, the, I mean, not the parents, the, the, the sister-in-law. I just brought their wall down. Remember when I came to Pakistan and your father died? And remember when, I, and then I, there were times when I had to burst out and say stuff, but I tried to stay, in order to see my kid, which I was able to see my kid twice when I went to Pakistan. And it took me four months, but I had to learn dr dramatic. I had to get into the drama side. I had to get into the political side. I had to assign, there were, I didn't even assign people. People assigned themselves to do stuff for me. You know what I'm saying? But they saw that I was moving on it. But when you get so devastated and you go down, which I had a lot of clients like that, their kids were gone for years and years and years and years, you know, and the State Department was giving me these devastated people because they can do nothing else with them because they've already, you know, years have passed, many years. And I was like, why are they giving these people to me? You know, and I, I worked on them and I got a lot of kids back. And First, I started out with Pakistan after the Philadelphia, India situation, but I, I got Pakistan and one woman was in New York and her husband came back to JFK. He got arrested at JFK and he sat in prison for six years. And that's what I was afraid my husband would have done if I didn't move on it. But he sat in prison um, 
he, he went to Pakistan, married again, left the kids there with his new wife and came back to the airport. And he got arrested, sat in, sat in uh, Rockers Island for six years. And uh, her name was Linda Wine, was my case. That was what the case, Linda Wine. So he's in prison. So she came to me, heard about me. We did a fundraiser in New York and we raised a lot of money. She knew a lot of people. She worked for a law firm. So we made a lot of money to work on her case, you know, which I sent over to the guy that helped me. So he's the one that worked on her case. And so they end up rounding up the family. She picked the wrong kids because she hadn't seen her kids in six years. She went by the family's house. She had an address. And she hadn't talked to her kids. And she said, those are my kids. But she hadn't seen her kids since they were like two and three. And here they are, you know, six years later. And she picked the cousins. And my CA operative guy was like, can you believe this? He called me at three in the morning. She picked the wrong kids. We're at the police station now. She picked the wrong kids. So some kind of way, they were able to go back and get the right kids. And she came back to JFK. And it was a big write-up on that, you know, her getting her kids. But just saying, you know, it's a lot of cases out there where people just, I don't know. It's, it's a lot of stuff that happens, but every, every case is individual with my company. I know some people say, oh, they're not all different. No, they're not all different. Kids were taken. We all know that. If you want to get into the dramatic side and I can sit back and, and figure out a little way of doing things. I mean, I went to Syria. I worked on a case in Jordan. We had a real case there that we worked on because his brother's the ambassador. We knew that we can get some stuff done from Jordan. And so I told my clients who were Canadian, because the attorney general from Canada sent this client to me, him and his father. And he said, my client was a pharmacist. The father was a doctor. And so I said, well, this is what we are thinking of doing. Okay, you tell me what you think, because you are, you know, my, my company, you are the parent. What we could do is we can get visas for you guys, possibly through the embassy here, Syrian embassy, uh, because I know the ambassador of Syria in DC's brother, and I'll let them know that you want to build a hospital over in Syria and we can get something of that sort done. And we can try to see if we can get a, a, a diplomat to escort you. And we could try to get the kid in that car. However we do it, not grab the kid, but however we do it, you have to say that your kid is, because he had all the paperwork that he had rights to the kid. But the mother was there. So it's a lot. I don't want to go too deep into how we did things, but it was a miraculous thing that we were able to do on his behalf through Syria. So just saying that there's many ways and mine is always individual, you know, individual cases, because you got to hear the whole. How did you leave your husband? What happened? Um, do you know where they live? Do you have addresses? It's a lie because I think when you go the other way, everybody gets so robotic and it doesn't get so deep in individual um, cases, you know, that can that can be done to return kids. So there you are. Yeah, no, I would absolutely agree. And I, I hear the same the same sentiment from from parents, from other advocates as well. Donna, I know you also wrote a book about uh, your experience with your son in Pakistan uh, called I'm Coming Back. Can you tell us a bit more about your book? Well, my book actually talks about what I talk about, talked about today and tells you the, the background that I came from, you know, so people won't think that, oh, she just went out there. No, I had somewhat of a background, you know, with my dad uh, being in politics, us being raised in politics. And I have a picture of Senator Bob Dole 
not Senator Bob Dole, with President Bush, the older President Bush, and my dad on there to show that my dad was invited to the White House under four different administrations for his advice because he's very intelligent. Uh, my dad was a businessman. Just to kind of give an idea, my community, I was raised in a community where everybody knew each other, a village raising a child, you know? So my whole neighborhood, all everybody's mother was my mother, you know? So it was that type of upbringing just to kind of bring up, you know, things. Then I had the Christian aspect of my beliefs. So, and all of us went to university, seven kids went to college and our family. It was a different kind of, you know, we were able to move in certain realms, which gave me a little up on some things. So I could understand the enchilant, the upper enchilant, how they do things other than the others, you know, how that's how they look, the others and us. But the book actually tells step-by-step of what I did and uh, what took place in Pakistan gets more in debt far as the situation itself. I wanted my son, I wanted to thank the people that helped me. So in the back, I have my acknowledgements of the university students and some other people that helped me, Senator Bob Dole, you know, uh, my parents, my sisters. I got a picture in the back of all my family members. But I wrote it for my son as well and my grandkids. I have three grandkids. I got one 16, nine, and two. So they're seven years apart. And I want them to read of a strong woman descendant and someone, one of their forefathers that fought to get their great, great, great grandfather years and years from now. But I want something documented that they could pull on for strength. But it's a Mother's Day special to the book, you know, for Mother's Day, where people would have me speak or whatever, which they have. But how we will cross many waters for our children, and we're supposed to. And the book was written to strengthen people to show my vulnerabilities throughout the book and also to show where I've reached towards my strength. Everybody has their own way of reaching towards the strength that can be built up within them. But I wanted to show that all things were possible and don't ever give up on your kids. Never give up on your kids. Don't ever stop, you know, your focus. And that's basically it because they're still your kid, you know, and they're still going to love you no matter what age they are when you get them backward. You get them back early or whatever. I had to go through a lot, even with my son. But you go as you go. And you just be the strongest. You ask God for strength. But the book was basically to build strength in people and to know that everything's possible. If any of our listeners, whether they be experts, advocates, or left-behind parents, grandparents, you name it, um, have any questions or want to get in contact with you, how can they do so? They can email me. I have no problems with them emailing me. I will help anybody, you know, in any way I can. I I would like the whole situation. If I can help anyone, I'm open. It's still fresh in my mind. It's really weird. You know, you go on because a part of healing is forgetting. And it took a long time to write that book. But that's because healing is forgetting. And I forgot all about all of it. So I started writing and I was like, oh my God, I forgot about this. I forgot about it. And it took me a while. I worked with my sister on it and my sister was getting angry because she's like, let's get this done today. You need to do another part or you need to write another, you know, sentence or, you know, and I, it was very hard. It was hard because you've gone on with your life. You're doing other things, you know, so, and there's hope. So if I'm doing other things, I'm letting you know, when you go beyond this, there is hope. I want to thank you once again, Donna, for joining us today. It was really powerful to listen, not to just your story, but to really the unique and unconventional ways you supported parents getting their children back. And I really believe that these are the types of stories, specifically success stories, 
that other children and parents need to hear so they can ideally use them to their advantage in getting their children back. So I want to thank you once again for coming today and sharing those stories with our audience. And for anybody that wants to find out more about Donna, I invite you to check out her book, which is linked in the description. And also feel free to reach out to Donna as she suggested in the podcast. Thank you. Double!